welcome to the London Insurance Lawyer Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Bruno Gill, barrister at Old Square Chambers. Bruno works as front of house in high-end hospitality and is now a legal 500-ranked personal injury barrister. Stay with us to find out his secrets for success and why putting your clients at the heart of everything you do is so important. Let's get into it. Hi, Bruno. Hi, Phil. How you doing? Uh, I, when I was doing some research um, on you, I found a quote that someone gave about you, and I saw it, and I said, God, I wish, I, wish someone had said this about me. And it's got two parts to it. But yeah. I'll read the top part of this quote. It says, Bruno is my weapon of choice for complex personal injury and clinical negligence chains. Um, are barristers weapons? Uh, well, I use the phrase occasionally as an insult. So, I mean, it may not be the high praise I took it to be. Um, but <laughs> I think, yeah, in the cut and thrust of ad- adversarial courtroom stuff, I, you know, I could be a sword. It also went on to say that you um, bring practical wisdom, which I thought was an absolutely lovely phrase, but I have no idea what it actually means. Any ideas? Uh, it tells you not to run an atrocious argument, maybe. I don't know. I. I have a suspicion there was a, I thought you were going to pick up on a different one, which may not be on my profile anymore, which was when I was a bit more junior, it, it said, uh, Bruno displays some of the attributes of the of senior silks. Like, he's never quite, it's never quite going to make it, but. Which, anyway. which ones, which ones don't you have? I, I never found out. We stopped talking. <laughs> oh, golly, God. Well, on that, on that note then, um, let's take me back to the, take you back to the beginning. Um, why law? Why law? Uh, well, I mean, I would nuance the question and I would say that for me it was why a barrister because uh, it wasn't uh, I'll try and be a barrister and if I fail at that I'll happily be a solicitor. And that is because it wasn't just the law that attracted me. It was the profession itself. Um, so I, I would I would say that to begin with. Um, law in and of itself was not enough for me to think, cool, that's what I want to do, come what may. Why a barrister? Um, the advocacy was a huge draw. That's something I love doing. I liked the idea of that adversarial cut and thrust that we have in our legal system. Uh, it seemed like a good bit of sport. It appealed. Uh, if I'm honest, there was an element of, well, that's a serious, proper job doing some pretty important work. Uh, and that doesn't matter to everyone and it shouldn't matter to anyone, but it did and does matter to me. Um, so, I mean, it's an interesting point because the um, stereotypical view of law being a sensible fact, like law and medicine and those traditional types of yeah. Um, careers uh, that still exists. There, I mean, there are loads of better careers out there and different careers, and everyone else just thinks. Um, we can talk about whether you would go into law now <laughs> again if you if you were um, if you were choosing now. But it 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 brings true to me too because ultimately I like being a lawyer. It brings a certain level of I'm not say prestige, but yeah. um, respect. You earn you earn respect, well, not automatically, but um, it's a genuinely no, respected profession. Yeah. And so I, I completely understand what you mean there, but I, it's, it shouldn't be a reason, but it, but it is. It's a, you know, I ruled out lots of careers because I thought those aren't serious and important enough. Um, I don't think that's a valid metric. 
but what my 20 something year old self did uh, and i think he is probably still in here somewhere no matter how sort of um objective or woke i become so it was always a barrister then not solicitor not any other part of the profession always a barrister it was uh, we'll come on to my sort of route to the bar but it was in my late 20s that i tried this and the deal with myself was try before you're 30 and if you don't get to the bar by 30 you can go and do something else um whether that be hospitality or whatever it was not try and be a barrister and if that doesn't work solicitor is the fallback i do not think i would make a good solicitor it didn't have the same draw to me i i I should finish one of the things that really attracted me to the bar was the way in which barristers work that sort of very intense you know big bit of work get it done on to the next one big bit of work get it done that churn uh, that appeals to me much more than the sort of the reality of life as a solicitor where you've got loads of cases on the go all the time they're with you for years you're doing bits and pieces, um, spinning plates. That's not me. I am. Give me a big, chunky thing to deal with for a while. I will get properly into it. And then when I'm done with it, I'm done. On to the next one. Um, so I, I'd, have, I'd have made a craps lister, frankly, uh, for many other reasons as well. So it was not try this. And if it doesn't work, any other career in the law preference being solicitor. It was do or die for me. What would you have done if you had well, hadn't become a barrister? I don't know because I hadn't allowed myself to think about it. I put everything into trying to get to the bar. My suspicion it would have been very easy for me to go back to high end hospitality um, and there was a very obvious career for me there, so I might have done that. I wouldn't have stayed in that forever um but God knows what I would have done instead. Probably some ill-advised decisions. <laughs> so let's take you back then. Let's go back to 18-year-old Bruno. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming you went to school. Uh, yeah, um, safe assumption. Yeah, you, you, had, you had some schooling. Um, had some schooling, yeah. And, and then what happened? Uh, so UCAS applications came around... I had a sneaking suspicion that I might want to be a barrister, even when I was sort of six. I think I did some work experience with them. I did. I did like a mini, mini, mini pupillage when I was like 16, thinking about being a barrister, which was your typical, oh, your friend's dad is a lawyer who might be able to get you into a chamber somewhere. Um, So I, I was thinking about it. But the received wisdom at the time was, and it might still be, you do not need a degree in law to be a lawyer. And degrees in law can be quite dry. So do something else that interests you. Um, So that's what I did. I went and did a degree in biology with absolutely no idea what one does with a degree in biology at the end of it, other than have, you know, a fairly good time at university for three years. That's what I did. Off I went. I went to Nottingham to do that had an all right time didn't love uni they weren't they weren't the best years of my life as a lot of people say I've had much better years since but it was fine got to 21 uh, and was then thinking well now what am I going to do with my life thought about the bar again thought about grad schemes 
but then also thought, well, I could just do a master's, couldn't I? Because that would then delay any serious decisions. I think that's what a lot of people do. Well, I'm not there yet, I'm, or I'm not quite ready. Why don't I do a bit more yeah. studying and yeah, see where that takes me? So that's what I did. I did a master's uh, and then left university. I mean, very vaguely, I'm about doing a PhD uh, just to delay. Oh, life you went even. full hog then. You didn't mess up. You I, really, really didn't want to get out to the real world. Well, I just honestly feel was not ready to commit to a career because the idea was just so terrifying. You know, doing. I mean, I know lots of people have many careers now, and that probably is the right way of doing things. And careers for life are getting rarer and rarer. But I wasn't thinking that at the time. I wasn't thinking, well, I could just start something and then move on to the next I was thinking what do I want to do in life what do I want to be and 21 22 23 I did not know the answer to that so I did think about uh, delaying life again um so I was thinking about grad schemes PhDs all that sort of thing and in the meantime life happened had to get a job to earn some money uh and the very temporary job while applying for grad schemes and, and working out what to do with my life was uh, making cocktails at a bar in South London, genuinely. Uh, I, di- I didn't know that. <laughs> loved it. Great job. Really good fun. Which bar? Uh, doesn't exist anymore. It was called Grand Union. Um, it was behind the Imperial War Museum. It was a chain. They did burgers and cocktails, and I, I did the cocktails. Um, yeah, really good fun. Uh, it was just me and a load of Australian people and a Swiss girl. It was great. Uh, and then genuinely by accident, I was talking to a guy who turned out to be the operations director of a company called Caprice Holdings that I hadn't really heard of, but I had heard of some of their restaurants, the Ivy, Scott's and Jay Shiki and the like. Uh, and he very kindly said to me, why don't you come to Scott's and do a trial shift as a maitre d'. I mean, is that, no, I mean, is that normal to take the bar? I'd say, I'd say barman, the mixologist. That's well, I, that. I think, no, I wouldn't have thought so. I was probably giving him a load of stinky chat that he was sort of vaguely enjoying because it had too many of my pina coladas or whatever it was that he was drinking. Sounds like a school um, needs to be a barrister. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and off I went. And I went for the trial shift, really enjoyed it. Um, for sort of all sorts of reasons. It was glamorous. It was intense. It was, you know, in this incredible setting, caliber of people coming in were people I'd never sort of met or come across in my life. Um, and so I was then offered a job, I think that day after the trial shift. And then I stayed there for a long time, um, in that group moving around a bit, um, and working my way sort of more into the operation side of things. But that is what I did until I was 27 or 28. What was it that like, made you take, you did that for quite a long time, other than the fact that I'm presuming you met a lot of pretty interesting people? Did meet a lot of interesting people, met a lot of interesting judges, barristers, the like. Um, I would be lying if I said it was meeting them that made me think, God, yeah, I definitely, definitely want to be a barrister because those guys are so cool. <laughs> Um, so despite made... the fact that you met a lot of judges and barristers, you still wanted to be a barrister. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in spite of it, exactly. The honest answer to that is that the company were doing quite 
interesting things. They were opening Scots in Abu Dhabi, the Ivy in Dubai. They were focusing on their international presence. And the plan, their plan, was that I would go and do all these openings and I would train the staff. Because by this point, I'd worked as restaurant manager, front of house manager at the club at the Ivy. I'd been running my own one in Percy Street, which is now closed, nothing to do with me, uh, called, it was called Bamboo. So I kind of had worked my way throughout all the different sections. Um, so the idea was I would go and do the openings, train the staff, be there for a while, and then somebody else would take over and I'd go and do the next one. So that was their career plan for me. And I just had this panic where they were sort of saying, we've got this career plan for you, Bruno. And I suddenly thought, well, aren't I supposed to have a career plan for me? Isn't that for me to work out rather than for you? And I just had this realization that I didn't want to do that. I, The company had this and still has this unbelievable retention of staff because, you know, it, it is a glamorous lifestyle. The pay, frankly, is ridiculous for what you're doing. Um, so there are, you know, guys and girls in their 40s and 50s who have been there for 20, 30 years. So that could have been me. Uh, and I just suddenly thought that I do not want that to be me. I need to have a bit of agency in my own life. Um, now is the time to make a decision about what I want to do. And I sort of slightly went back to the drawing board. But all the while, there had been this sort of little voice at the back of my head saying, you know, I do think I would really enjoy being a barrister. I would like to give it a go, but I had just kept putting it off. Um, and so then that's when I made that pact with myself that I would give it a go. I'd go and do the conversion um, and bar school and try and get, must have my... Tight, tight time frame. So 27, so so three years seems, seems quick so, to me. So basically I had to either get pupillage in my bar course year or the year after. And that was, those were the last opportunities. And then I would have to go and do something else. Thankfully, I managed to get it in the bar course year. Um, so deal done. And then the question of tenancy, of course, then came up. And I got tenancy in, I think you start as a tenant in October. And I turned 30 in November. So I, I, you know, you did it. You literally did it. I did it. I did it. Exactly. Whether I would have allowed myself to be a pupil for another year on the basis that, you know, ah, that's good enough. I'm called to the bar and I'm in the chambers. You know, you can't quit now as a pupil at 30. Maybe I'd have allowed myself that, that latitude. But um, squeaky bum time along the way. But yeah, it works. I mean, it's out. impressive. It's a long road. It's something you should probably talk about because three years is a short time frame from a effectively a standing start I meaning you had to do the bar course to start with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah. during that time let alone get pupillage and let alone yeah. then be successful at pupillage and get your tenancy afterwards of which there are not yeah. many um, a lot more people would have a longer look at that um do you think the fact that it was such a short time frame gave you that extra little bit of impetus or was it something else that i mean are you just brilliant and you always meant to be a barrister no not that um I think I think the deadline for me was a good thing. Deadlines for me are good things. Um, a, another reason why I like being a barrister is that sort of, you know, hard stop. You have to do it by here, so you're going to have to really graft. And basically, I just 
worked. I know everyone says they work really hard, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to this. I don't buy into hustle culture. I'm I'm not one to say, you know, the way to live your life is work every minute of every day. But frankly, from 27 to 30, I worked unbelievably hard. I, just everything else went on hold while I had a proper crack at this. Um, so I was, you know, doing absolutely everything I could from volunteer work in the evenings, as many, many, uh, many pupillages as I could get my hands on, every mooting competition going, every bit of pro bono. <clears throat> and then on the courses, you know, I, I had not been a particularly impressive student when I was 19 to 21. I wasn't that interested in studying. It was a very different story when I was 27, 28. I was loving it. Um, but also there was just this huge pressure, which was, you know, this is this is a means to an end. Uh, and so, I, you know, all of the essential reading, of course, all of the optional reading, I did that as well. I was in the library every morning, uh, you know, me and maybe two or three other people just grafting on a level that most people were not in the like we all knew each other we were all still friends in the library sort of 7 30 and it became like a matter of pride as to who could be there earliest um working all hours basically i don't claim to work like that anymore and i don't advocate that as a lifestyle but needs must um so yeah i, I think it was just a huge amount of pressure that i'd put on myself i like intensity it appealed to me i could sustain it for a few years uh and I think that was, and just a lot of luck, a lot of luck. You know, I, I have absolutely no doubt that I'm a tenant at Old Square Chambers as a, as a, a result of a huge amount of luck as well. Yeah, I mean, luck is one of those things that I'm, 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 I'm a firm believer you make your own luck, but you need some opportunities to come your way, which you have no control over um, at no, some I totally, point. I totally agree. The, the more you yeah. do, the more lucky you are. I mean, I, 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 I see that exactly. all the time. Uh, and that example of you hustling for your three years, um, going all in. I mean, that's how that's brilliant. I mean, that's that's how you've got to do. It. That's the minimum standard, I, I guess, for for people who want to succeed now, because there will always be someone who will do that. And yeah, your professions well, closed. I mean, to everyone else. Yeah. So I think there are two types of people in this world. There are those who have unbelievable gifts of intellect, and uh, you know. They've gone to Oxbridge, they've then gone and done a Masters or whatever somewhere in the Ivy Leagues. You know, they are, it was once described to me, I did a, a mini at one Essex court and and I had a bit of like the riot attack read to me at the end of it about how hard it is to get pupillage anywhere. And of course, at one Essex court, I mean, it really freaking is. But, you know, it, it was described to me as just an embarrassment of riches, that the application, the quality of the applications they're getting. And I can't compete in, in that sort of echelon, uh, and I don't try to. Uh, but so that there's that sort of class of citizens that I'm not part of. And then there are those of us that are just going, like the sort of rabid dogs that are just going to keep going at it until we get it. Um, and, you know, we have to work harder. We don't have the same CVs. We may not have the same you know, IQ but you can still achieve it's a matter about you know it's a matter of not only doing everything in your power to get as good as you can but being sensible and i think this kind of ties in with your make your own luck point which is if you've got 
you know, an average 2-1 from a Russell group, you're not going to make your own luck by applying to the Magic Circle, exclusively Magic Circle firms, or exclusively the very top sets. If you're coming to the bar, you are, you know, you've got to be realistic and you've got to give yourself the best odds. Um, and, and then there are other things that come in. So my interview at Old Square was the last interview in a succession of car crash interviews that I'd had for tenancy. Um, I can't remember how many I'd had. I'd tried in the GDL year. I'd had a few uh, interviews, which was, you know, great and reassuring. Uh, none of them led anywhere. Bar course year, I had several absolute car crashes. I still, to this day, you know, will be having a shower and I'll just go, oh my God, did I actually say that? Uh, and what then did you say? what sort of thing did he say? Oh, I can't. I mean, there was there was one interview where I won't name the chambers, but there were sort of four barristers all interviewing me, and we were doing this advocacy game, which was Bruno advocate for this proposition: only people who own houses should be entitled to vote. So obviously a really very difficult position to argue from. And of course, so I would say something to advocate for that position. And then isn't that incredibly snobbish or isn't that, you know, like, yeah, of course it freaking is. Nobody should be advocating for this position. We got rid of it. Anyway. And and uh, after like five minutes of this, I just said to them, can we just stop this game now? I've had enough, which, you know, probably is not in their marking criteria as an impressive thing to say. Uh, and I, that's just one example, but I'll be having a shower and I'll think, oh, God, what a... It's, I, it's interesting. I had a similar experience. Um, so I did I did some um, pupillage interviews as well, but I did some mock ones. And it's part of like the training part for it. They put you in situations like, much like you've just described. You know, this is what might come down the barrel to you. And I was sitting in the room with the, the three of them, but there was an empty chair and that's what caught my attention. <laughs> so I, I can't remember what I'd been asked. But it was some fairly innocuous question that was really boring. Right? And it had no purpose. It was just not like an opening question. And it was just, it was meaningless. It was no argument. There were none of the things that you were describing. And then somebody else came in the room and sat behind me and asked me a question, which was really hard. And the first thing, when someone comes into a room, it's really tricky to know what to do. If it, yeah. And if you can't see them, so I remember turning around and, and thinking, do I say hello? Do I, is, this, is, this, is this meant to be like this? And she looked like dead stony. She gave me nothing, absolutely nothing. And then I, so I started to turn around and then she asked this question. And I thought, uh, which way do I face? <laughs> like, I don't forget what the question is. Where do I answer this question to? And it yeah. was the social situation you were put under pressure. Of course, that's what happens in court. These weird things happen. And if you can cope with that on demand when you're very junior, you may have the ability to cope with it um, when yeah. you're under pressure in, in, in later life, um, which is what it's all about. It's about separating the wheat from the chaff. And it's one way of doing it, whether it's fair or not. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I also said it was a car crash because I said something really daft, like really stupid. Uh, and that was effectively the end of the mo- And it was a mock interview. It wasn't even a real one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the feedback was don't ever do that <laughs> I was like, what? but what are you meant to and I asked what are you meant to do with this and he said there is no right answer we just want to see what you do and it's about whether you can keep your head and keep it under control and keep a rational thought which is obviously all part of being on your feet at the bar or under pressure in a negotiation because yeah. things get under your skin things knock you off your game and that's the easiest way of winning an argument is effectively to just beat the person <laughs> I, ex post facto, I can sort of say to myself, well, would, would you want to end up in a set where, you know, one of them was this old 
chap wearing a bow tie and really stuffy and you know do you want to end up at a set where they think a good interview technique is to bully someone with an impossible proposition and who knows but anyway so old the old square one I, I'd sort of already just resigned myself to the fact that they were going very badly my interviews I wasn't going to get tenancy so I went in there almost more relaxed and resigned to failure um that might be one thing that you know the luck that I'm talking about there was another thing which was apparently the interview before me was a, a total at old square was just car crash doesn't even do it justice but it involved the, the girl who was in there running out the room crying because she had fluffed it. it's not it's not funny but it's, it's awful <laughs> it's and then awful. of course we have someone who was so collapsed under the pressure of the interview and, and then and cries and leaves in hysterics and then somebody comes in and does an all right performance you know in terms of the relative scores that i get presumably that bit of luck also helped um so you know you never know but i i I hear you when you say make your own luck, and I I would sort of say that is give yourself every chance. But at the end of the day, there are things that are just outside your control. And that's one of the reasons why you've got to keep going at it, because, you know, the more opportunities you give yourself, uh, the more likely you are to succeed, I think. So given your hospitality background, are there any things from, from your time doing that that now stand you in better stead? So, I mean, Other than the a, ability to talk about extraordinarily high-value bottles of wine, this, I mean, genuinely, this is a question that I face quite a lot in my pupilage uh, interviews, and I, I think at the time I, I was slightly bullshitting, um, but I would give the same answer today because I think it is absolutely true, and that is, you know, it is all about the client in both fields. Uh, let's not kid ourselves, Phil. At the end of the day, obviously it's different for a litigant in person who's coming to courts for justice, but at the end of the day, you and I are offering service to a client. Uh, and if we take it as read that everyone in our positions doing our jobs is, is of a sort of an acceptable standard, it's, it's got to be client care that is you know, one of the most important attributes and so, yes, uh, working in high-end hospitality, you know, I have to say I dealt with some of the most difficult individuals you could hope or wish or fear to come across. And I absolutely believe that that was hugely important um, and a lot of useful lessons were learned. How about education? And by that, I mean, you've, you've touched on, uh, but it's not it's not the be all and end all and no. you and i both you and i are both the beneficiaries of just hard graft um and slightly quirky ways of, of, of getting to where we are uh, today but how important is education and what you do at university or what you do before i, I had the same advice actually maybe the same barrister gave, gave me the same advice as you go and do something else if you don't do law yeah. um go and do something you're really interested in and you want to do because you're gonna do law the rest of your life and actually you'll be better at it and law at university has nothing to do with the practice of law which i 100 percent agree with um so what is it that you, you and in fact you and i both have science backgrounds yeah. i have science a levels um which made writing and reading and much harder for me um but i see things broadly speaking in black and white which is science yeah. and clients yeah. generally just want the answer they don't want to know about why um sometimes yeah. they do but most of the time they just want to tell you the answer um yeah. and then and then 
be personable about it. So is, does that resonate with you or do you have a different view? That resonates with me a great deal. And in terms of uh, is education important in this job? No, I, the academic pursuit of law, I don't think is at all important. You know, jurisprudence, uh, law as a sort of, you know, human rights as an academic subject or whatever it may be. I, I don't think that's important. Anyone should have the ability, once you learn how to use LexisNexis or Westlaw or whatever, anyone should have the ability to be able to do their research. What this job requires, amongst other things, if you want to excel at it, is, a, I think, two things. I'll start with the one you can learn. Being analytical it is, I think, critical in this job. And too many people aren't analytical enough. And I think you can you can teach yourself to be analytical. You can teach yourself logic. Obviously, some people are born with a more analytical brain than others, but there's, to a certain extent, um, innate ability there. So I don't think having a lack of education in an analytical subject is necessarily going to hold you back. The second thing that I think is just crucial to the job as a barrister and and as a solicitor, particularly in our field, Bill, personal injury, um, or any of the sort of taught civil stuff, judgment. I think it, it is almost above everything else, one of the most, the most critical things. And I don't think you can learn, well, maybe you can learn judgment to a certain extent in a slightly artificial way, but I think you either have good judgment or you don't. Uh, and so I don't think any degree or, you know, postgrad or whatever is going to make up for a, an inability to be faced with a certain scenario or set of facts and be able to not just by gut, because it's not, you know, you're not going to get anywhere just by gut. And analysis comes back into it, I suppose. But that ability to sort of sense the right answer. And it goes beyond that being able to sense the best way to put an argument, thinking about the tactics of what's going to be said against you, being able to sense, well, who is who is this judge? How What are they jibing with and what's not working with them? You know, all that stuff. I don't think you can go to university and come away with better grounding and judgment. Um, and if, you, if you've got it, I think you'll do very well in this job. And if you don't have it, I think you'll be found out quite quickly. So the question then is, how do you know whether you have good judgment or not? Now, I know you do, and um, I know people think that I do, but we are already in the profession and have a track record of judgment, good judgment. But if you aren't, how do you know if you do? I mean, it's a very good question. I've never thought about it. I suppose a lifetime of being wrong <laughs> would teach you that your instincts might be off um i mean i'm it's kind of i'm kind of cheating in that i think i know you have good judgment i think i have good judgment and therefore i've never been faced with a scenario where I, well maybe one or two or three or four but i it's not often that i'm like oh my god is that the answer i was i was completely a, wrong yeah. yeah yeah exactly so it's hard to imagine um being a person who who gets it wrong a lot and maybe those people don't exist and maybe i'm being too binary that there's you know 
the good judges and the bad judges. But um, I suppose well, the people we hang find... out with will generally be the people with better yeah. judgment because yeah. of their nature. Yeah. They've got to where they've got to. Um, exactly. And then it becomes an echo chamber, which is why I had never thought about the question either. But as soon as you said judgment is in yeah. fact one of the skills, it's, I completely agree, one hundred percent. I mean, one of the well, things I, I was thinking of is whether you know, people who are argumentative when they're when they're young tend to come be better that. lawyers. Um, yeah. People who don't lose arguments or lose fewer arguments, and of course, one of the great skills of being a lawyer is how not to argue and when not to argue. This is exactly the point. Yeah, exactly what I was going to say. And the, the misconception always, and I'm sure you've had this as well, is oh, you're you're a lawyer, you must love to argue. It's like in my personal life, absolutely not. No, you know, the, yes, the less the better. Yeah, exactly. You know, I. Uh, and never with my wife. But um, you can't argue with your it, wife; she's always right. It's impossible. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, if you are always arguing with someone on every subject, well, maybe that's a clue that you're just wrong, and that's why everyone is arguing with you all the way. Um, but it's, it's a it's a very interesting question. How do you know whether you have good judgment or not? Because uh, in fact, if you have really bad judgment, you'd get that judgment wrong as well, wouldn't you? So yeah, it's reflective, isn't it? It's very difficult to, to, for you to say, or for me to say, I have great judgment. That's an incredibly arrogant thing to say, yeah. because by definition, I might be a terrible judge. Um, yeah. So um, you need other people to express back to you in whatever way, whether it be by being doing paid work as we do and being yeah. right. Or yeah. by some other external factor, such as doing something that you think is right, and it, it turns without knowing that it's right, and it turns out to be right, and that could be in any form of life, or, or, yeah. or any or anything. Yeah, uh, I'm immediately thinking about being a parent. Um, you have to make yeah. judgment calls all the time. You just don't know what the answer is. You just hope that it's correct, but as you yeah. gain some experience, so how does experience then feed into judgment? Well, it hones it for sure. Um, Without doubt. And the convenient thing about our jobs is that somebody literally does judge us and tells us when when we're wrong, which is very helpful. But experience hones it and it informs it. Um, A thing that I, you know, when I have a case or, or a problem and I go to one of my colleagues for help, I share a room with Two other, with a few other PI barristers, they're more experienced than I am, and I and I go to them to, for help. But I don't go to them to ask them questions of law or for authorities or whatever, because as I say, I, I can do that. What I ask them for is, in this scenario that I've never encountered before, what are the tactical options? Um, what would you do? And that's not to say that I will then advise to do exactly what they've done. But drawing on their experience helps hone my judgment and I then form my own views. And sometimes I think they did the wrong thing. They might think I then do the wrong thing. Um, But certainly experience hones judgment. And that includes drawing on the experience of others, which is why it's so great to surround yourself. And something we might also come on to actually being present in a room with other people. Let's deal with interaction with your fellow peers so traditionally barristers or objectively barristers work alone that's not actually the case um and anybody who's in the profession knows that but the way we have remote working now and the fact that you don't have to go to your chambers or your office means that you're not around 
them anywhere near as much as you would have been. Firstly, how has that affected you generally and how is it going to affect future barristers getting to where you are now? I think it depends on the individual barrister. So I have never been afraid since the pandemic of picking up the phone to colleagues to ask them things. Um, there are plenty of barristers, junior, much more junior than me, who, who don't do that. And I think it's a real shame. What we definitely lose by not being in a room together is the, that sort of osmosis, just hearing, you know, somebody of 20 years call talking to their solicitor about this certain point or whatever. Um, so, you know, I think you've always got to be willing to ask help. And it's true that we are perceived as working in silos independently. But as you correctly identify, we actually don't. Or or if we do, we're making a mistake. Um, but I am trying to go into Timbers an awful lot more. Some other members are as well. Um, and I'm selfishly doing that because I like the company and I think it's good for me. But I also think our most junior members are going to be in real difficulty if they for the first four or five years of their practice don't have um that sort of osmosis going on in the background i, I think it's going to be a real problem i completely agree i think we are in danger of heading towards a two-tier profession of those in the and i say profession is in the legal profession so that includes all walks of the legal profession those who had the benefits of learning from their peers directly through osmosis and i agree that osmosis is actually the most valuable tool it's great you can always ask someone you can trust about what the answer is but just being near other people who are brilliant in their jobs is the best way of getting better it just is there's no there's no substitute to that yeah. um, you just learn just do what they do just copy and steal everything that someone else does you don't need to reinvent it if they do it well you do it and then you'll do it well um, and the reason they do it well is because they've stolen it from someone else who probably does it well too yeah. so the first ever precedent kudos yeah. to that <laughs> yeah i mean and it's evolved over time but you look at any contracts they're all basically the same yeah i mean the, the, people don't reinvent the wheel in any form no. of, of law and in fact law is really well designed to never have to reinvent the wheel and that's one of its problems because it's yeah. all set in looking backwards not looking forwards which is why when new things come up it's very difficult to adjust to them particularly in yeah. the profession let alone poor clients who want to move the needle forwards and the, the legal profession isn't literally isn't equipped to do it that well that's changing yeah. um, with the use of technology. But it is, it, we're going to have those people who are well-equipped to deal with people face-to-face, -face, who have excellent personal relationships and who are generally better lawyers because they've been around more lawyers, and then yeah. those who aren't. Yeah. And the problem is, is that we need people to come from the second category who aren't into the first category. Otherwise, the profession will get weaker and weaker and weaker over time. That's my view. And that's <laughs> something I'm struggling with. Um, and other than the answer of you've just got to do it and try harder, i.e. go to the office more, go to chambers more. If you're junior, be around more senior people more as much as you can do. Other than that, is there, an, is there any other way of cultivating that? I mean, t video calls are great, but it's not the same. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you, you could come up with some rather convoluted, you know, multiple check-ins per day and lots of this is what I've been doing and this is you know fr from the supervisor saying this is what I've been doing and this is what I said and this is why I said it but that's that's seriously onerous and it requires a level of reflective practice that not everyone has or certainly not everyone wants to deal with every day um you know I, 
why did you do that? Why do you, I don't know. I, I did it because I did it. Um, I don't want to think about why I did it because I've got this next set of pleadings to move on to. So very difficult to do. Maybe there's a way of doing it, but my personal view is it's got to be back in person as much as possible. And I'm also a big advocate for, in terms of market position, being seen, being at things, um, being in the conversation. And it's just very difficult to do if you're a very junior lawyer attending things remotely. I agree. I think it's probably the biggest issue with work from home and, and the remote sort of revolution. But let's talk about one of the positives of, of remote working. Let's talk about being parents, because you and yes. I are both new dads, relatively new dads. I've got an almost two-year-old, you've got a one-year-old. Um, yeah. So we're still learning. Um, that's I don't think any parents said they're not still learning, but we're, we're still on the sharp end of learning um, and things change quickly. Um, and and <laughs> not always for the best. I've just hit a rocky patch where no is now the default position. Um, and he has great fun, but he, there's crying involved. So how has work-life balance changed since remote working has come up and you haven't had to go to to, to chambers so often? Uh, well, I mean, things change so quickly, as you say, that it's not really a sort of static thing. Um certainly at the beginning it was amazing to be able to be around all the time and you know you, you hang up your video call and then go and help with the baby and uh not only you know put a shift in but also bond with we both have some bond with your boy um so that's been amazing and i sort of think it would have been a real shame had i've had had i've worked the way i did pre-pandemic i would have missed an awful lot um, but now we're at a phase where he's got childcare sorted for most of the day. So that frees me up to go in um, an awful lot more. And I have to say, I really like that sort of separation, that being able to do your deep focus work um, in chambers all day rather than that slightly more fragmented. I'm a dad and a barrister, you know, not necessarily nailing either as well as I'd like, but... Uh, so uh, for me, you know, that separation has been great. Um, that that said, you know, the more CCMCs that are online that don't require me having to go to Preston or whatever, brilliant, because then I can see him in the morning and see him before bed. And there are definitely positives to it. Um, it's uh, massive. And I think it's personal choice. I yeah. do my very best to take him to nursery every day it's not possible when i when i have to come to london for for meetings at nine o'clock but um, that means i start my day later when i'm at home because i've taken him to nursery nursery's not close um and traffic's awful and but that's my choice that's what i choose to spend my time with and then that means i've guaranteed some time with him during the day some good quality time and i get up with him every morning um so I, i can't see a way with working in the office to see him in the morning and the evening without cutting my day short in the office, which then raises the question of why go to the office, obviously for the benefits of, of what you've already mentioned about being around other people, but your actual working time is, is, is shortened massively. Um, and that will change over time, I guess. Well, I hope it will. Yeah. Um, he, he won't want to see me <laughs> twice a day, I suspect after in a, in a few years time, but um, while he does, it, it, it works well for me, but it's, it's definitely different yeah. for everybody. 
So, I mean, you and I are in slightly different positions in our career um, than, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago. Um, I, being very junior and having children, I think, would be really, really difficult yeah. uh, for all the reasons we're discussing, you know, be present, well, I can't, I've got a kid at home, etc. But I think if, if you're young, new to the profession, um, newly qualified, without kids, I think be in as much as you can because you're doing yourself a disservice staying at home, frankly. And that's one of the things that the profession as a whole is going to have to grapple with because that immediately cuts out a huge pool of people, i.e. people who have kids who are younger and inexperienced um, and puts up a barrier to entry for them or makes their life hard. And one of the purposes of this podcast is to try and talk and explore some of those issues because otherwise we're going to run out we're already a a fairly undiverse profession would you we're getting better but um like we're we're both white boys middle class i mean that's simple as that um um, and the vast majority of the profession is um i've been very fortunate i've always worked with extraordinarily successful women they've Mm -hmm. only ever been managed by women um i've only ever worked closely with women and i think that's benefited me massively because me slightly different yeah. view on the world and i've had the benefit of their view on the world which is different to mine and as you rightly identified earlier the whole purpose of being a lawyer is to service a client if you just want to be right you can be a lawyer but there's only a few types of law you can do everything else yeah. is client also, is client focused so what happens when you're wrong and your only skill is being right and you've got, or even you're not wrong, but you've got in front of the wrong judge who didn't have their weed picks that day and they tell you you're wrong. And then what, then you're absolutely screwed, aren't you? Cause you, you've got no client skill. Your client's not particularly wedded to you. They were only wedded to you cause you were always right. And you've just been wrong. Well, so I always use the example that I, I probably don't now, but I used to make maybe a hundred case decisions a week on average, broadly speaking actual decisions on cases and so if i'm 99 percent right so i.e almost perfect i am absolutely wrong once every week and that's yeah. so that's 50 times a year that i'm absolutely wrong not a little bit wrong completely wrong now what you'd hope is that's innocuous and you know it might be a typo in an email or it might be something fundamental and so you have to make your peace with that. And that was if I was 99% right. And there's no way in the world I could be 99% right. And if you are, then you're probably not making hard enough decisions. Um, that's that's yeah. the reality of it. Yeah. If, you're that, if you're that right, you should probably try some yeah. harder decisions. So one of the benefits of being a solicitor rather than a barrister is I don't lose my career if I make a mistake. I have a firm that, broadly speaking, will look after me. Assuming I haven't done anything absolutely mad. Um, but at the bar, a mistake has a much bigger impact or could have a much bigger impact and so how do you manage that risk and how does it sit with you given that being wrong sometimes can lead to much worse consequences with clients and solicitors than certainly certainly from my side of the profession well one would hope that there is never going to be a time in one's career where you are flat wrong on a really important issue where you haven't advised the client that we might be wrong, you know, because we've got these risks and, and this fact could go against us or this witness may not perform. It's hard to imagine a scenario where, where you have told your client, we win this all day, every day, and then you're blindsided. Now, 
with the right client care, right, ex- right expectation management, etc., the loss should not be in any way fatal to your career, let alone particularly detrimental to it. And I think we could all think of losses um, that we shouldn't have had, but did have, and they've not been catastrophic. Because if you've got, you know, the skills and the judgment and the client care, etc., you you've foreseen that's a possible scenario. Your client should be aware of it. They're going into litigation with eyes open, um, one would hope. Or, you know, you've just got this bonkers judge who's so obviously wrong on the law that, you know, you've got a slam dunk appeal anyway, so nobody holds that against the solicitor or the barrister or the client who didn't quite perform. Um, so I, I don't think being wrong should be feared, or being found to be wrong should be feared, provided you've been sort of wise enough and smart enough to spot the weaknesses in your own case. Uh, and again, I think that comes back to judgment and analysis. And time um, skills. I, we all, I mean, every time I look at a case, I think, oh, here's 10 different issues, three of them matter, one of them's critical. But if I don't tell the client something, and that comes down to judgment, making the right call about because the client doesn't want to know everything. Um, some do, but most most aren't interested. Yeah. Um, but if you've picked the wrong horse to back, you need to have made sure that either your client trusts you and accepts yeah. it occasionally, and is realistic that you might be wrong, but has the benefit of you being right more often than not. Then, yeah. then it's okay. And in fact, I've been in situations where we've had ridiculous results, um, and you think, what the hell happened there? I mean, was was I just wrong? And it's actually been the client who's come back and said, no, 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 no. This, for this, this, this reason, when you have that sort of period of self-reflection, as everybody should do when you make a lot of decisions, and when you're making decisions that have big effects, and you have to make your peace with that being a lawyer, you can, whether that be at what I'd call the bottom end of what we do, the low value stuff, or whether that be on a 20, 30, 40 million pound case, it, you have to make your peace with what you're saying and what it means. And if you can't, then don't say anything. And also, I, I think if you have a, if you have a fear of being wrong, then then you're in the wrong game, uh, because you know there are too many moving parts and too many variables to ever know uh, the precise outcome. And if you're scared of being found to not be right, if that's your ultimate fear in this profession, you're going to have a miserable time. And aside from anything, we can be very like reductive about it. You have indemnity at the end of the day for a reason for those. To, I don't know how I've never had to rely on my indemnity. I don't know how many barristers do, but you know, at the end of the day, there is that safety net there for precisely those reasons where you fluff it if you fluff it. But if if you are petrified, I think you and I have talked before about the importance of being wrong anyway and how it, they're incredibly useful learning experience. But if you're petrified of loss, um, losing a case or being wrong on a point, then you're going to find this job really, really difficult. Because so often with the client, you know, the advice at the end of the day is here are all the risks, but let's go for it. We've got a 60% chance on it. Oh, 60% course, would be a high chance. I mean, one of your yeah. colleagues once said, I never give more than 70%, and I'm saying 70% chance of success now. Read between yeah, the lines. From 30 to 70, and that's it. I don't, I don't do naught to, yeah. Well, we don't need um, an absolutes. Um, I always talk about, um, I know I see bad cases, because if you have a good case, you've either already won it, and my clients just paid you or you've never brought it um because i've got such a good case so i only ever see bad cases and generally speaking lawyers tend to make them worse so 
Um, I, I very, very rarely see a case where everyone comes out and thinks, God, that was a good result. Brilliant. Fantastic. It doesn't happen in litigation. It's one of those misnomers. It's not the, the sort of suit scenario, you know, where you have these massive wins and everyone rides off and, and has champagne at the end of the day. There's always yep. something that could have gone better. And maybe that's part of being successful. You've, you've got to reflect and accept that you can't win everything, but you win as much as you can do and you take, take the wins as they come. And, and, and yeah. you've got to manage perfectionism. So yeah. what, what, what's, your, what's your biggest achievement or accomplishment? Um, <laughs> Ever. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to rule out school and university because I frankly can't remember. Um, biggest achievement or thing that I'm sort of, I can remember just the elation, Ten, getting tenancy, big one, mm-hmm. um, you know, there have been a few cases that, you know, thank you notes from a client or a bottle of booze at the end of it, definitely. Um, but for me, in recent history, I think two years ago, as I identified, I, I know I'm, you have two, um, identified as rising star in PI and Clinneg and was then ranked the next year. And that was massive for me because in, at the bar, you don't get feedback unless you've you know, mucked up and somebody's complained about you. Uh, it's very rare to get any feedback. So you often have absolutely no idea how you're doing. And I, I don't court feedback. I don't sort of, I, I don't know if any barristers do, um, but I don't seek it out probably for fear of what they might say. But anyway, obviously the directories go and do it for you. And so to get that, um, those were, those, I, I was you know, unbelievably chuffed with those. They were big for me because it's sort of a nice, you're on the right track doing a good job. You're now sort of moving into the top whatever percent in your field. So I think those are probably the, my proudest professional accomplishments. I, I can speak to one of them um, with rankings and in legal directories. It's, it's a huge achievement personally for exactly that reason. It's your peers mm. who said, do you know what? Yeah this person's all right. I think they're all right. And because yeah. of who they are, other people have said they're all right. And that peer review is, is, is broadly how you get ahead in law. And that's about treating people fairly, being right more often than you're wrong, um, having good relationships, all skills that, that aspiring lawyers or any, in fact, any professional should have. Do great for your clients. One of the mantras I live by is, if I'm not sure, my default position is do what will delight my client. Because yeah. ultimately, that's all that matters. Because if they don't re-instruct me, what was the point? Yeah. And I'm yeah. not interested in winning this case or just working with them on this case. I'm interested in working on the next 100 cases and the next 10 biggest cases that they ever come. And when their worst thing happens, I want them to phone me. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure that they feel that they've got what they want. Um, question. What are your long-term goals? The reason I don't particularly have long-term goals um, and I don't think the bar is a, it, is a, it doesn't nurture long-term thinking because it's, you do this case, oh, it's done. Okay, now you do this case. Um, what are my long-term goals? I, I'd love to get into appellate practice, do some appeals. Um, ultimately, that's sort of a, a string I would like to add to my bow. Um, 
I love trials. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't want to do first instance stuff. I would happily do that forever. It's the most fun you can have um, professionally. Uh, but I do think, you know, it would play to my strengths. Um, I think I'd really enjoy it. My head of chambers said to me the other day, um, you're one of those people, Bruno, that you just don't like it when the others are wrong, do you? Uh, and that is that is true about me. I don't like, you know, and injustice might be putting it too high, but I don't like people getting away with things when it's incorrect. So appeals appeal for that reason. Um, but I mean, more, my, I, ha- I have a one consistent long-term goal in life, which is to be interested in what I do always. And I think that explains why I've been on a sort of merry little dance following different interests, but that uh, it is and always will be, uh, the most important thing to me to get out of bed and be interested in the people I'm dealing with, the subject matter, the stuff I have to learn or whatever it is. That drives me. That Robert Winsor, I mean, he's an eminent gynecologist and fertility expert, but he wrote a book on the human brain, uh, which I read when I was about sort of 16 or so. I think it's called The Human Mind. And in that, he made the probably quite trite point, but I, it really sort of stuck with me, which was uh, essentially adults lose interest in the world around them and they start to assume they know this paradigm about how the world works. And if you challenge it, they will be utterly shocked that they got it wrong. So if somebody were to take off and fly in front of you, you know, your jaw would hit the floor compared with if you do that to a toddler, they'll be like, oh, look, that person can fly. How interesting. Why can that person fly and daddy can't? And and that sort of, you know, always being receptive to new things and, you know, learning a new skill that's a bit uncomfortable or dealing with new subject matter that I, I think drives me ultimately. I think if if that's everybody's goal, then hopefully we'll all end up doing exactly what we want. But I mean, we're in this very, very lucky position, you and I, which is that we, uh, d- the subject matter we deal with on day to day is dealing with the most important moments in people's lives. You know, and what could be more interesting than learning about new people, weird things that happened, you know, the terrible consequences. We, we are so privileged and it is such an interesting, often looked down upon incorrectly area of law, I think. Um, so long may it hold my attention and interest. Um, yeah. But thanks, Phil. I mean, it's been really great for me, a bit of reflective uh, practice that, again, we don't do enough of in life, I think, and certainly not at the bar. Bruno, thank you.